This month is all Edgar Allan Poe on Blacklock Audio Tales. Up first, Edgar Allan Poe, Death of Edgar Allan Poe, The Unparalleled Adventures of One Hans Flau, The Gold Bug, Four Beasts in One, The Homo Camel Leopard, Murders and the Rue Morgue, The Mystery of Mary Roget, the Balloon Hoax, Miss Found in a Bottle, The Oval Portrait. Blacklock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. It's still cold outside in a lot of places. Why don't you get some of those dino sound slippers? Walk around, make dino sounds. It's super fun. Be a clown. Get some of those cool t-shirts that they have all around at founditemclothing.com. Look like your favorite cool guy from your favorite 80s movie. Or maybe a bad guy from an 80s movie if that's your thing too. Or just, do you like t-shirts that celebrate cult films from the 80s and 90s? founditemclothing.com you should go with them and while we're talking about people a quick shout out to monster kid radio monster kid radio google it search for it online uh zach ferguson look for the show notes for articulate warbling a podcast i produce let's see what else um search for twisted pulp radio i think it is what it's called and Twisted Pulp Radio, Twisted Pulp Show. Anyway, it's a pulp radio show produced out of some radio station in California, and I lend some voice talents to that occasionally. Okay, what else do we have in the show notes? Dave's Corner of the Universe. Check out Dave's Corner of the Universe by just simply searching for Dave's Corner of the Universe. There's no other Dave's Corners of the Universe out there. And also, listen for Dave's little specials here and there on Black Clock Audio Tales, and also Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, which just had a Christmas special drop, and hopefully will have its episode one happen within the month of January. So, we'll see when all that happens. It's going to be super cool. And also, don't forget to follow Black Clock Audio Tales on social media. Just look for PGTTCM, that's the website, PGTTCM.com, for People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, our monthly Cthulhu Mythos show that, oh, unfortunately, we just had a reading last month, but hey, this month, we're going to go back to having an episode. And also, let's not forget that you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at PGTTCM, or look for Black Clock Audio Tales if that doesn't work. And let's not forget, you are wonderful, and I think you're great. Okay. Org. Read by Bob Neufeld. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 1. The Mystery of Marie Roget, Part 2. It was soon after dark, upon this same evening, that Madame de Luc, as well as her eldest son, heard the screams of a female in the vicinity of the inn. The screams were violent, but brief. 
Madame D. recognized not only the scarf which was found in the thicket, but the dress which was discovered upon the corpse. An omnibus driver, Valence, now also testified that he saw Marie Roger cross a ferry on the Seine on the Sunday in question, in company with a young man of dark complexion. He, Valence, knew Marie, and could not be mistaken in her identity. The articles found in the thicket were fully identified by the relatives of Marie. The items of evidence and information thus collected by myself, from the newspapers, at the suggestion of Dupin, embraced only one more point, but this was a point of seemingly vast consequence. It appears that, immediately after the discovery of the clothes as above described, the lifeless, or nearly lifeless, body of saint Eustache, Marie's betrothed, was found in the vicinity of what all now supposed the scene of the outrage. A file, labelled laudanum, and emptied, was found near him. His breath gave evidence of the poison. He died without speaking. Upon his person was found a letter, briefly stating his love for Marie, with his design for self-destruction. "'I need scarcely tell you,' said Dupin, as he finished the perusal of my notes, "'that this is a far more intricate case than that of the Rue Morgue, from which it differs in one important respect. This is an ordinary, although an atrocious, instance of crime. There is nothing peculiarly outré about it. You will observe that, for this reason, the mystery has been considered easy, when, for this reason, it should have been considered difficult of solution. Thus, at first, it was thought unnecessary to offer a reward. The myrmidons of G were able at once to comprehend how and why such an atrocity might have been committed. They could picture to their imaginations a mode, many modes, and a motive, many motives. And because it was not impossible that either of these numerous modes and motives could have been the actual one, they have taken it for granted that one of them must. But the case with which these valuable fancies were entertained, and the very plausibility which each assumed, should have been understood as indicative rather of the difficulties than of the facilities which must attend elucidation. I have before observed that it is by prominences above the plane of the ordinary that reason feels her way, if at all, in her search for the true, and that the proper question, in cases such as this, is not so much what has occurred, as what has occurred that has never occurred before. In the investigations at the house of Madame L'Espanaye, the agents of G were discouraged and confounded by that very unusualness which, to a proper regulated intellect, would have afforded the surest omen of success, while this same intellect might have been plunged in despair at the ordinary character of all that met the eye in the case of the perfumery girl, and yet told of nothing but easy triumph to the functionaries of the prefecture. In the case of Madame L'Espanaye and her daughter, there was, even at the beginning of our investigation, no doubt that murder had been committed. The idea of suicide was excluded at once. Here, too, we are freed, at the commencement, from all supposition of self-murder. 
the body found at the barrier du Roule was found under such circumstances as to leave us no room for embarrassment upon this important point. But it has been suggested that the corpse discovered is not that of the Marie Roger for the conviction of whose assassin or assassins the reward is offered, and respecting whom, solely, our agreement has been arranged with the prefect. We both know this gentleman well. It will not do to trust him too far. If, dating our inquiries from the body found, and thence tracing a murderer, we yet discover this body to be that of some other individual than Marie, or, if starting from the living Marie, we find her, yet find her unassassinated, in either case we lose our labor, since it is Monsieur G. with whom we have to deal. For our own purpose, therefore, if not for the purpose of justice, it is indispensable that our first step should be the determination of the identity of the corpse with the Marie Roger who is missing. With the public, the arguments of L'Etoile have had weight, and that the journal itself is convinced of their importance would appear from the manner in which it commences one of its essays upon the subject. Several of the morning papers of the day, it says, speak of the conclusive article in Monday's L'Etoile. To me, this article appears conclusive of little beyond the zeal of its inditer. We should bear in mind that, in general, it is the object of our newspapers rather to create a sensation, to make a point, than to further the cause of truth. The latter end is only pursued when it seems coincident with the former. It's the print which merely falls in with ordinary opinion, however well founded this opinion may be, earns for itself no credit with the mob. The mass of the people regard as profound only him who suggests pungent contradictions of the general idea. In ratiocination, not less than in literature, it is the epigram which is the most immediately and most universally appreciated. In both, it is of the lowest order of merit. What I mean to say is, that it is the mingled epigram and melodrama of the idea that Marie Roger still lives, rather than any true plausibility in this idea, which have suggested it to L'Etoile, and secured it a favorable reception with the public. Let us examine the heads of this journal's argument, endeavoring to avoid the incoherence with which it is originally set forth. The first aim of the writer is to show, from the brevity of the interval between Marie's disappearance and the finding of the floating corpse, that this corpse cannot be that of Marie. The reduction of this interval to its smallest possible dimension becomes thus at once an object with the reasoner. In the rash pursuit of this object, he rushes into mere assumption at the outset. It is folly to suppose, he says, that the murder, if murder was committed on her body, could have been consummated soon enough to have enabled the her murderers to throw the body into the river before midnight. We demand at once, and very naturally, why? Why is it folly to suppose that the murder was committed within five minutes after the girl's quitting her mother's house? Why is it folly to suppose that the murder was committed at any given period of the day? There have been assassinations at all hours. 
But, had the murder taken place at any moment between nine o'clock in the morning of Sunday, and a quarter before midnight, there would still have been time enough to throw the body into the river before midnight. This assumption, then, amounts precisely to this, that the murder was not committed on Sunday at all. And, if we allow L'Etoile to assume this, we may permit it any liberties whatever. The paragraph beginning, It is folly to suppose that the murder, etc., however it appears as printed in L'Etoile, may be imagined to have existed actually thus in the brain of its indicter. It is folly to suppose that the murder, if murder was committed on the body, could have been committed soon enough to have enabled her murderers to throw the body into the river before midnight. It is folly, we say, to suppose all this, and to suppose at the same time, as we are resolved to suppose, that the body was not thrown in until after midnight. A sentence sufficiently inconsequential in itself, but not so utterly preposterous as the one printed. Were it my purpose, continued Dupin, merely to make out a case against this passage of L'Etoile's argument, I might safely leave it where it is. It is not, however, with L'Etoile that we have to do, but with the truth. The sentence in question has but one meaning as it stands, and this meaning I have fairly stated, but it is material that we go behind the mere words for an idea which these words have obviously intended and failed to convey. It was the design of the journalist to say that, in whatever period of the day or night of Sunday this murder was committed, it was improbable that the assassins would have ventured to bear the corpse to the river before midnight. And herein lies, really, the assumption of which I complain. It is assumed that the murder was committed at such a position, and under such circumstances, that the bearing it to the river became necessary. Now, the assassination might have taken place on the river's brink, or on the river itself, and thus the throwing the corpse into the water might have been resorted to, at any period of the day or night, as the most obvious and most immediate mode of disposal. You will understand that I suggest nothing here as probable, or as coincident with my own opinion. My design, so far, has no reference to the facts of the case. I wish merely to caution you against the whole tone of L'Etoile's suggestion, by calling your attention to its ex parte character at the outset. Having prescribed thus a limit to suit his own preconceived notions, having assumed that, if this were the body of Marie, it could have been in the water but a very brief time, the journal goes on to say, all experiences show that drowned bodies, or bodies thrown into the water immediately after death by violence, require from six to ten days for sufficient decomposition to take place to bring them to the top of the water. Even when a cannon is fired over a corpse, and it rises before at least five or six days' immersion, it sinks again if let alone. These assertions have been tacitly received by every paper in Paris, with the exception of Le Moniteur. This latter print endeavors to combat that portion of the paragraph, which has reference to drowned bodies only, by citing some five or six instances 
in which the bodies of individuals known to be drowned were found floating after the lapse of less time than is insisted upon by l'Etoile. But there is something excessively unphilosophical in the attempt on the part of Le Moniteur to rebut the general assertion of l'Etoile by a citation of particular instances militating against that assertion. Had it been possible to adduce fifty, instead of five, examples of bodies found floating at the end of two or three days, these fifty examples could still have been properly regarded only as exceptions to l'Etoile's rule, until such time as the rule itself should be confuted. Admitting the rule, and this Le Moniteur does not deny, insisting merely upon its exceptions, the argument of l'Etoile is suffered to remain in full force for this argument does not pretend to involve more than a question of the probability of the body having risen to the surface in less than three days, and this probability will be in favour of L'Etoile's position, until the instances so childishly adduced shall be sufficient in number to establish an antagonistical rule. You will see at once that all argument upon this head should be urged, if at all, against the rule itself and for this end we must examine the rationale of the rule. Now, the human body, in general, is neither much lighter nor much heavier than the water of the Seine. That is, that is to say, the specific gravity of a human body, in its natural condition, is about equal to the bulk of the fresh water which it displaces. The bodies of fat and fleshy persons, with small bones, and of women generally, are lighter than those of the lean and large-boned, and of men, and the specific gravity of the water of a river is somewhat influenced by the presence of the tide from the sea. But, leaving this tide out of the question, it may be said that very few human bodies will sink at all, even in fresh water, of their own accord. Almost anyone, falling into a river, will be enabled to float if he suffer the specific gravity of the water fairly to be adduced in comparison with his own, that is to say, if he suffer his whole person to be immersed with as little exception as possible. The proper position for one who cannot swim is the upright position of a walker on land, with the head thrown fully back and immersed, the mouth and nostrils alone remaining above the surface. Thus circumstanced, we shall find that we float without difficulty and without exertion. It is evident, however, that the gravities of the body and of the bulk of water displaced are very nicely balanced, and that a trifle will cause either to preponderate. An arm, for instance, uplifted from the water and thus deprived of its support, is an additional weight sufficient to immerse the whole head, while the accidental aid of the smallest piece of timber will enable us to elevate the head so as to look about. Now, in the struggles of one unused to swimming, the arms are invariably thrown upwards, while an attempt is made to keep the head in its usual perpendicular position. The result is the immersion of the mouth and nostrils, and the inception, during efforts to breathe while beneath the surface, of water into the lungs. Much is also received into the stomach and the whole body becomes heavier by the difference between the weight of the air original distending these cavities and that of the fluid which now fills them. 
this difference is sufficient to cause the body to sink as a general rule but is insufficient in the cases of individuals with small bones and an abnormal quantity of flaccid or fatty matter such individuals float even after drowning the corpse being supposed at the bottom of the river will there remain until by some means its specific gravity again becomes less than that of the bulk of water which it displaces this effect is brought about by decomposition or otherwise the result of decomposition is the generation of gas distending the cellular tissues and all the cavities and giving the puffed appearance which is so horrible when this distension has so far progressed that the bulk of the corpse is material increased without a corresponding increase of mass or weight its specific gravity becomes less than that of the water displaced and it forthwith makes its appearance at the surface but decomposition is modified by innumerable circumstances is hastened or retarded by innumerable agencies for example by the heat or cold of the season by the mineral impregnation or purity of the water, by its depth of shallowness, by its currency or stagnation, by the temperament of the body, by its infection or freedom from disease before death. Thus it is evident that we can assign no period, with anything like accuracy, at which the corpse shall rise through decomposition. Under certain conditions, this result would be brought about within an hour. Under others, it might not take place at all. There are chemical infusions by which the animal frame can be preserved forever from corruption. The bichloride of mercury is one. But apart from decomposition, there may be, and very usually is, a generation of gas within the stomach from the acetous fermentation of vegetable matter, or within other cavities from other causes, sufficient to induce a distension which will bring the body to the surface. The effect produced by the firing of a cannon is that of a simple vibration. This may either loosen the corpse from the soft mud or ooze in which it is embedded, thus permitting it to rise when other agencies have already prepared it for so doing, or it may overcome the tenacity of some putrescent portions of the cellular tissue allowing the cavities to distend under the influence of the gas. Having thus before us the whole philosophy of this subject, we can easily test it by the assertions of L'Etoile. All experience shows, says this paper, that drowned bodies, or bodies thrown into the water immediately after death by violence, require from six to ten days for sufficient decomposition to take place to bring them to the top of the water. Even when a cannon is fired over a corpse, and it rises before at least five or six days' immersion, it sinks again if left alone. The whole of this paragraph must now appear a tissue of inconsequence and incoherence. All experience does not show that drowned bodies require from six to ten days for sufficient decomposition to take place to bring them to the surface. Both science and experience show that the period of their rising is, and necessarily must be, indeterminate. If, moreover, a body has arisen to the surface through firing of cannon, it will not sink again, if let alone, until decomposition has so far progressed as to permit the escape of the generated gas. 
but I wish to call your attention to the distinction which is made between drowned bodies and bodies thrown into the water immediately after death by violence. Although the writer admits the distinction, he yet includes them all in the same category. I have shown how it is that the body of a drowning man becomes specifically heavier than its bulk of water, and that he would not sink at all except for the struggles by which he elevates his arms above the surface, and his gasps for breath while beneath the surface, gasps which supply by water the place of the original air in the lungs. But these struggles and these gasps would not occur in the body thrown into the water immediately after death by violence. Thus, in the latter instance, the body, as a general rule, would not sink at all, a fact of which l'Etoile is evidently ignorant. When decomposition had proceeded to a very great extent, when the flesh had in a great measure left the bones, then, indeed, but not till then, should we lose sight of the corpse. And now, what are we to make of the arguments that the body found could not be that of Marie Roger, because, three days only having elapsed, this body was found floating? If drowned, being a woman, she might never have sunk, or, having sunk, might have reappeared in twenty-four hours or less. But no one supposes her to have been drowned, and dying before being thrown into the river, she might have been found floating at any period afterwards, whatever. But, says L'Etoile, if the body had been kept in its mangled state on shore until Tuesday night, some trace would be found on shore of the murderers. Here it is at first difficult to perceive the intention of the reasoner. He means to anticipate what he imagines would be an objection to his theory, that is, as the body was kept on shore two days, suffering rapid decomposition, more rapid than if immersed in water. He supposes that, had this been the case, it might have appeared at the surface on the Wednesday, and thinks that only under such circumstances it could have so appeared. He is accordingly in haste to show that it was not kept on shore, for, if so, some trace would be found on shore of the murderers. I presume you smile at the sequitur. You cannot be made to see how the mere duration of the corpse on the shore could operate to multiply traces of the assassins. Nor can I. And furthermore, it is exceedingly improbable, continues our journal, that any villains who had committed such a murder as is here supposed would have thrown the body in without weight to sink it, when such a precaution could have been so easily taken. Observe here the laughable confusion of thought. No one, not even L'Etoile, disputes the murder committed on the body found. The marks of violence are too obvious. It is our reasoner's object merely to show that this body is not Marie's. He wishes to prove that Marie is not assassinated, not that the corpse was not. Yet his observation proves only the latter point. Here is a corpse without weight attached. Murderers, casting it in, would not have failed to attach a weight. Therefore it was not thrown in by murderers. This is all which is proved, if anything is. The question of identity is not even approached, and L'Etoile has been at great pains merely to gainsay now what it has admitted only a moment before. We are perfectly convinced, it says, that the body found was that of a murdered female. Nor is this the sole instance, even in this division of his subject, 
where our reasoner unwittingly reasons against himself. His evident object, I have already said, is to reduce, as much as possible, the interval between Marie's disappearance and the finding of the corpse. Yet we find him urging the point that no person saw the girl from the moment of her leaving her mother's house. We have no evidence, he says, that Marie Roger was in the land of the living after nine o'clock on Sunday, June the twenty-second. As his argument is obviously an ex parte one, he should, at least, have left this matter out of sight. For had any one been known to see Marie, say on Monday or on Tuesday, the interval in question would have been much reduced, and by his own ratiocination, the probability much diminished of the corpse being that of the grisette. It is, nevertheless, amusing to observe that L'Etoile insists upon its point in the full belief of its furthering its general argument. Reperuse now that portion of this argument which has reference to the identification of the corpse de Beauvais. In regard to the hair upon the arm, L'Etoile has been obviously disingenuous. Monsieur Beauvais, not being an idiot, could have never urged, in the identification of the corpse, simply hair upon its arm. No arm is without hair. The generality of the expression of L'Etoile is a mere perversion of the witness's phraseology. He must have spoken of some peculiarity in this hair. It must have been a peculiarity of color, of quantity, of length, or of situation. Her foot, says the journal, was small. So are thousands of feet. Her garter is no proof whatever, nor is her shoe, for shoes and garters are sold in package. The same may be said of the flowers in her hat. One thing upon which Monsieur Beauvais strongly insists is that the clasp on the garter found had been set back to take it in. This amounts to nothing, for most women find it proper to take a pair of garters home and fit them to the size of the limbs they are to encircle, rather than to try them in the store where they purchase. Here it is difficult to suppose the reasoner in earnest. Had M. Beauvais, in his search for the body of Marie, discovered a corpse corresponding in general size and appearance to the missing girl, he would have been warranted, without reference to the question of habiliment at all, in forming an opinion that his search had been successful. If, in addition to the point of general size and contour, he had found upon the arm a peculiar hairy appearance, which he had observed upon the living Marie, his opinion might have been justly strengthened and the increase of positiveness might well have been in the ratio of the peculiarity or unusualness of the hairy mark. If, the feet of Marie being small, those of the corpse were also small, the increase of the probability that the body was that of Marie would not be an increase in the ratio merely arithmetical, but in one highly geometrical or accumulative. And to all this, shoes such as she had been known to wear upon the day of her disappearance, and although these shoes may be sold in packages, you so far augment the probability as to verge upon the certain. What, of itself, would be no evidence of identity, becomes through its corroborative position proof most sure. Give us, then, flowers in the hat corresponding to those worn by the missing girl, and we seek for nothing farther. If only one flower, we seek for nothing farther. What then if two or three, or more? Each successive one is multiple evidence, proof not added to proof, but multiplied by hundreds or thousands. 
let us now discover, upon the deceased, garters such as the living used, and it is almost folly to proceed. But these garters are found to be tightened by the setting back of a clasp, in just such a manner as her own had been tightened by Marie, shortly previous to her leaving home. It is now madness or hypocrisy to doubt. What L'Etoile says in respect to this abbreviation of the garters being an usual occurrence, shows nothing beyond its own pertinacity in error. The elastic nature of the clasp-garter is self-demonstration of the unusualness of the abbreviation. What is made to adjust itself must of necessity require foreign adjustments, but rarely. It must have been by an accident, in its strictest sense, that these garters of Marie needed the tightening described. They alone would have amply established her identity, but it is not that the corpse was found to have the garters of the missing girl, or found to have her shoes, or her bonnet, or the flowers of her bonnet, or her feet, or a peculiar mark upon the arm, or her general size and appearance. It is that the corpse had each, and all collectively. Could it be proved that the editor of L'Etoile really entertained a doubt, under the circumstances, there would be no need, in his case, of a commission de lunatico inquirendo. He has thought it sagacious to echo the small talk of the lawyers, who for the most part content themselves with echoing the rectangular precepts of the court. I would here observe that very much of what is rejected as evidence by a court is the best evidence to the intellect. For the court, guiding itself by the general principles of evidence, the recognized and booked principles, is averse from swerving at particular instances. And this steadfast adherence to principle, with rigorous disregard of the conflicting exception, is a sure mode of attaining the maximum of attainable truth in any long sequence of time. The practice in mass is therefore philosophical, but it is not the less certain that it engenders vast individual error. In respect to the insinuations levelled at Beauvais, you will be willing to dismiss them in a breath. You have already fathomed the true character of this good gentleman. He is a busybody, with much of romance and little of wit. Anyone so constituted will readily so conduct himself upon occasion of real excitement as to render himself liable to suspicion on the part of the over-acute or the ill-disposed. Monsieur Beauvais, as it appears from your notes, had some personal interviews with the editor of L'Etoile, and offended him by venturing an opinion that the corpse, notwithstanding the theory of the editor, was, in sober fact, that of Marie. He persists, says the paper, in asserting the corpse to be that of Marie, but cannot give a circumstance, in addition to those which we have commented upon, to make others believe. Now, without re-adverting to the fact that the stronger evidence to make others believe could never have been adduced, it may be remarked that a man may very well be understood to believe, in a case of this kind, without the ability to advance a single reason for the belief of a second party. Nothing is more vague than impressions of individual identity. Each man recognizes his neighbor, yet there are few instances in which any one is prepared to give a reason for his recognition. The editor of L'Etoile had no right to be offended at M. Beauvais's unreasoning belief. The suspicious circumstances which invest him will be found to tally much better with my hypothesis of romantic busybodyism 
than with the reasoner's suggestion of guilt. Once adopting the more charitable interpretation, we shall find no difficulty in comprehending the rose in the keyhole, the Marie upon the slate, the elbowing the male relatives out of the way, the aversion to permitting them to see the body, the caution given to Madame B. that she must hold no conversation with the gendarme until his return, Beauvais, and lastly, his apparent determination that nobody should have anything to do with the proceedings except himself. It seems to me unquestionable that Beauvais was a suitor of Marie's, that she coquetted with him, and that he is ambitious of being thought to enjoy her fullest intimacy and confidence. I shall say nothing more upon this point, and as the evidence fully rebuts the assertion of L'Etoile, touching the matter of apathy on the part of the mother and other relatives, an apathy inconsistent with the supposition of their believing the corpse to be that of the perfumery girl, we shall now proceed as if the question of identity were settled to our perfect satisfaction. And what, I here demanded, do you think of the opinions of Le Commercial? End of the Mystery of Marie Roger, Part 2 Read by Bob Neufeld. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 1. The Mystery of Marie Roget, Part 3. That in spirit they are far more worthy of attention than any which have been promulgated upon the subject. The deductions from the premises are philosophical and acute, but the premises, in two instances at least, are founded in imperfect observation. Le Commerciel wishes to intimate that Marie was seized by some gang of low ruffians not far from her mother's door. It is impossible, it urges, that a person so well known to thousands as this young woman was should have passed three blocks without someone having seen her. It is impossible, it urges, that a person so well known to thousands as this young woman was should have passed three blocks without someone having seen her. This is the idea of a man long resident in Paris, a public man, and one whose walks to and fro in the city have been mostly limited to the vicinity of the public offices. He is aware that he seldom passes so far as a dozen blocks from his own bureau without being recognized and accosted. And, knowing the extent of his personal acquaintance with others, and of others with him, he compares his notoriety with that of the parfumery girl, finds no great difference between them, and reaches at once the conclusion that she, in her walks, would be equally liable to recognition with himself in his. This could only be the case were her walks of the same unvarying, methodical character, and within the same species of limited region as are his own. He passes to and fro, at regular intervals, within a confined periphery, abounding in individuals who are led to observation of his person through interest in the kindred nature of his occupation with their own. But the walks of Marie may, in general, be supposed discursive. In this particular instance, 
it will be understood as most probable that she proceeded upon a route of more than average diversity from her accustomed ones. The parallel which we imagine to have existed in the mind of Le Commercial would only be sustained in the events of the two individuals traversing the whole city. In this case, granting the personal acquaintances to be equal, the chances would be also equal that an equal number of personal rencounters would be made. For my own part, I should hold it not only as possible, but as very far more than probable that Marie might have proceeded at any given period by any one of the many routes between her own residence and that of her aunt without meeting a single individual whom she knew, or by whom she was known. In viewing this question in its full and proper light, we must hold steadily in mind the great disproportion between the personal acquaintances of even the most noted individual in Paris and the entire population of Paris itself. But, whatever force there may still appear to be in the suggestion of Le Commercial, will be much diminished when we take into consideration the hour at which the girl went abroad. It was when the streets were full of people, says Le Commercial, that she went out. But not so. It was at nine o'clock in the morning. Now, at nine o'clock of every morning in the week, with the exception of Sunday, the streets of the city are, it is true, thronged with people. At nine on Sunday, the populace are chiefly within doors preparing for church. No observing person can have failed to notice the peculiarly deserted air of the town from about eight until ten on the morning of every Sabbath. Between ten and eleven the streets are thronged, but not at so early a period as that designated. There is another point in which there seems a deficiency of observation on the part of Le Commercial, a piece, it says, of one of the unfortunate girl's petticoats, two feet long and one foot wide, was torn out and tied under her chin, and around the back of her head, probably to prevent screams. This was done by fellows who had no pocket-handkerchiefs. Whether this idea is or is not well founded, we will endeavor to see hereafter. But by fellows who have no pocket-handkerchiefs, the editor intends the lowest class of ruffians. These, however, are the very description of people who will always be found to have handkerchiefs, even when destitute of shirts. You must have had occasion to observe how absolutely indispensable of late years, through the Surab Blagard, has become the pocket-handkerchief. And what are we to think, I asked, of the article in Le Soleil? that it is a vast pity its inditer was not born a parrot, in which case he would have been the most illustrious parrots of his race. He has merely repeated the individual items of the already published opinion, collecting them with a laudable industry from this paper and from that. The things had all evidently been there, he says, at least three or four weeks and there can be no doubt that the spot of this appalling outrage has been discovered. The facts here restated by Le Soleil are very far indeed from removing my own doubts upon this subject, and we will examine them more particularly hereafter in connection with another division of the theme. At present we must occupy ourselves with our investigations. You cannot fail to have remarked the extreme laxity of the examination of the corpse. To be sure, the question of identity was readily determined, 
or should have been, but there were other points to be ascertained. Had the body been in any respect despoiled? Had the diseased any articles of jewelry about her person upon leaving home? If so, had she any when found? These are important questions utterly untouched by the evidence, and there are others of equal moment which have met with no attention. We must endeavour to satisfy ourselves by personal inquiry. The case of Saint Eustache must be re-examined. I have no suspicion of this person, but let us proceed methodically. We will ascertain beyond a doubt the validity of the affidavits in regard to his whereabouts on the Sunday. Affidavits of this character are readily made matter of mystification. Should there be nothing wrong here, however, we will dismiss Antustache from our investigations. His suicide, however corroborative of suspicion, were there found to be deceit in the affidavits, is without such deceit in no respect an unaccountable circumstance, or one which need cause us to deflect from the line of ordinary analysis. In that which I now propose, we will discard the interior points of this tragedy, and concentrate our attention upon its outskirts. Not the least usual error in investigation such as this is the limiting of inquiry to the immediate, with total disregard of the collateral or circumstantial events. It is the malpractice of the courts to confine evidence and discussion to the bounds of apparent relevancy. Yet experience has shown, and a true philosophy will always show, that a vast, perhaps the larger portion of truth, arises from the seemingly irrelevant. It is through the spirit of this principle, if not precisely through its letter, that modern science has resolved to calculate upon the unforeseen. But perhaps you do not comprehend me. The history of human knowledge has so uninterruptedly shown that to collateral or incidental or accidental events we are indebted for the most numerous and most valuable discoveries that it has at length become necessary, in any prospective view of improvement, to make not only large, but the largest allowances for inventions that shall arise by chance, and quite out of the range of ordinary expectation. It is no longer philosophical to base upon what has been a vision of what is to be. Accident is admitted as a portion of the substructure. We make chance a matter of absolute calculation. We subject the unlooked-for and unimagined to the mathematical formulae of the schools. I repeat that it is no more than fact that the larger portion of all truth has sprung from the collateral, and it is but in accordance with the spirit of the principle involved in this fact that I would devote inquiry, in the present case, from the trodden and hitherto unfruitful ground of the event itself, to the contemporary circumstances which surround it. While you ascertain the validity of the affidavit, I will examine the newspapers more generally than you have as yet done. So far, we have only reconnoitred the field of investigation, but it will be strange indeed if a comprehensive survey, such as I propose, of the public prints, will not afford us some minute points which shall establish a direction for inquiry. In pursuance of Dupin's suggestion, I made scrupulous examination of the affair of the affidavits. The result was a firm conviction of their validity, 
and of the consequent innocence of St. Eustache. In the meantime, my friend occupied himself, with what seemed to me a minuteness altogether objectless, in a scrutiny of the various newspaper files. At the end of a week he placed before me the following extract. About three and a half years ago, a disturbance very similar to the present was caused by the disappearance of this same Marie Roger from the parfumerie of Monsieur Leblanc in the Palais Royal. At the end of a week, however, she reappeared at her customary comptoir as well as ever, with the exception of a slight paleness not altogether usual. It was given out by Monsieur Leblanc and her mother that she had merely been on a visit to some friend in the country, and the affair was speedily hushed up. We presume that the present absence is a freak of the same nature, and that at the expiration of a week, or perhaps a month, we shall have her among us again. Evening Paper, Monday, June 23rd. An evening journal of yesterday refers to a former mysterious disappearance of Mademoiselle Roger. It is well known that during the week of her absence from Leblanc's perfumerie she was in the company of a young naval officer, much noted for his debaucheries. A quarrel, it is supposed, providentially led her to return home. We have the name of the Lothario in question, who is at present stationed in Paris, but for obvious reasons forbear to make it public. Le Mercury, Tuesday morning, June 24th. An outrage of the most atrocious character was perpetrated near this city the day before yesterday. A gentleman, with his wife and daughter, engaged, about dusk, the services of six young men, who were idly rowing a boat to and fro near the banks of the Seine, to convey them across the river. Upon reaching the opposite shore, the three passengers stepped out, and proceeded so far as to be beyond the view of the boat, when the daughter discovered that she had left in it her parasol. She returned for it, was seized by the gang, carried out into the stream, gagged, brutally treated, and finally taken to the shore at a point not far from that at which she had originally entered the boat with her parents. The villains have escaped for the time, but the police are upon the trail, and some of them will soon be taken. Morning Paper, June 25th We have received one or two communications, the object of which is to fasten the crime of the late atrocity upon Menet. But as this gentleman has been fully exonerated by a loyal inquiry, and as the arguments of our several correspondents appear to be more zealous than profound, we do not think it advisable to make them public. Morning Paper, June 28th We have received several forcibly written communications, apparently from various sources, and which go far to render it a matter of certainty that the unfortunate Marie Roger has become a victim of one of the numerous bands of blackguards which infest the vicinity of the city upon Sunday. Our own opinion is decidedly in favor of this supposition. We shall endeavor to make room for some of these arguments hereafter. Evening Paper, Tuesday, June 31st On Monday, one of the bargemen connected with the Revenue Service saw an empty boat floating down the Seine. Sails were lying in the bottom of the boat. The bargeman towed it under the barge office. The next morning it was taken from thence without the knowledge of any of the officers. The rudder is now at the barge office. Le Diligence, Thursday, June 26th. Upon reading these various extracts, they not only seemed to me irrelevant, 
but I could perceive no mode in which any of them could be brought to bear upon the matter at hand. I waited for some explanation from Dupin. "'It is my present design,' he said, "'to dwell upon the first and second of those extracts. I have copied them chiefly to show you the extreme remissness of the police, who, as far as I can understand from the prefect, have not troubled themselves in any respect with an, an examination of the naval officer alluded to. Yet it is mere folly to say that between the first and second disappearance of Marie there is no supposable connection. Let us admit the first elopement to have resulted in a quarrel between the lovers and the return home of the betrayed. We are now prepared to view a second elopement. We know that an elopement has again taken place, as indicating a renewal of the betrayer's advances, rather than as the result of new proposals by a second individual. We are prepared to regard it as a making up of the old amour, rather than as a commencement of a new one. The chances are ten to one that he who had once eloped with Marie will again propose an elopement rather than that she to whom proposals of elopement had been made by one individual should have them made to her by another. And here let me call your attention to the fact that the time elapsing between the first ascertained and the second supposed elopement is a few months more than the general period of the cruises of our men of war. Had the lover been interrupted in his first villainy by the necessity of departure to sea, and had he seized the first moment of his return to renew the base designs not yet altogether accomplished, or not yet altogether accomplished by him. Of all these things we know nothing. You will say, however, that in the second instance there is no elopement as imagined. Certainly not. But are we prepared to say that there was not the frustrated design? Beyond Saint-Houstache, and perhaps Beauvais, we find no recognized, no open, no honorable suitors of Marie. Of none other is there anything said. Who, then, is the secret lover of whom the relatives, at least most of them, know nothing, but whom Marie meets upon the morning of Sunday, and who is so deeply in her confidence that she hesitates not to remain with him until the shades of an evening descend? amid the solitary groves of the Barrier du Roule. Who is that secret lover, I ask, of whom at least most of the relatives know nothing? And what means the singular prophecy of Madame Roger on the morning of Marie's departure? I fear that I shall never see Marie again. But if we cannot imagine Madame Roger privy to the design of elopements, may we not at least suppose this design entertained by the girl? Upon quitting home, she gave it to be understood that she was about to visit her aunts in the Rue des Drômes, and Saint-Eustache was requested to call for her at dark. Now, at first glance, this fact strongly militates against my suggestion. But let us reflect that she did meet some companion and proceed with him across the river, reaching the Barrier du Roule at so late an hour as three o'clock in the afternoon, is known but in consenting so to accompany this individual, for whatever purpose, to her mother unknown or unknown, she must have thought of her expressed intention when leaving home, and of the surprise and suspicion aroused in the bosom of her affianced suitor, Saint-Houstache, when calling for her 
at the hour appointed, in the Rue des Drômes, he should find that she had not been there, and when, moreover, upon returning to the pension with this alarming intelligence, he should become aware of her continued absence from home. She must have thought of these things, I say. She must have foreseen the chagrin of saint Eustache, the suspicion of all. She could not have thought of returning to brave this suspicion. But the suspicion becomes a point of trivial importance to her, if we suppose her not intending to return. We may imagine her thinking thus. I am to meet a certain person for the purpose of elopement, or for certain other purposes known only to myself. It is necessary that there will be no chance of interruption. There must be sufficient time given us to elude pursuit. I will give it to be understood that I shall visit and spend the day with my aunt at the Rue de Drome. I will tell saint Eustache not to call for me until dark. In this way, my absence from home for the longest possible period, without causing suspicion or anxiety, will be accounted for, and I shall gain more time than in any other manner. If I bid saint Eustache call for me at dark, he will be sure not to call before. But, if I wholly neglect to bid him call, my time for escape will be diminished, since it will be expected that I return the earlier, and my absence will the sooner excite anxiety. Now, if it were my design to return at all, if I had in contemplation merely a stroll with my individual in question, it would not be my policy to bid saint Eustache call, for, calling, he will be sure to ascertain that I have played him false a fact of which I might keep him forever in ignorance, by leaving home without notifying him of my intention, by returning before dark, and by then stating that I had been to visit my aunt in the Rue des Drômes. But, as it is my design never to return, or not for some weeks, or not until certain concealments are effected, the gaining of time is the only point about which I need give myself any concern. You have observed, in your notes, that the most general opinion in relation to this sad affair is, and was from the first, that the girl had been the victim of a gang of blackguards. Now, the popular opinion, under certain circumstances, is not to be disregarded. When arising of itself, when manifesting itself in a strictly spontaneous manner, we should look upon it as analogous with the intuition which is the idiosyncrasy of the individual men of genius. In ninety-nine cases from the hundred, I would abide by its decision. But it is important that we find no palpable traces of suggestion. The opinion must be rigorously the public's own, and the distinction is often exceedingly difficult to perceive and to maintain. In the present instance, it appears to me that this public opinion in respect to a gang has been superinduced by the collateral event which is detailed in the third of my extracts. All Paris is excited by the discovered corpse of Marie, a girl young, beautiful, and notorious. This corpse is found bearing marks of violence and floating in the river. But it is now made known that at the very period or about the very period, in which it is supposed that the girl was assassinated, an outrage similar in nature to that endured by the deceased, although less in extent, 
was perpetuated by a gang of young ruffians upon the person of a second young female. Is it wonderful that the one known atrocity should influence the popular judgment in regard to the other unknown? This judgment awaited direction, and the known outrage seemed so opportunely to afford it. Marie, too, was found in the river, and upon this very river was this known outrage committed. The connection of the two events had about it so much of the palpable, such a true wonder would have been a failure of the populace to appreciate and to seize it. But, in fact, the one atrocity, known to be so committed, is, if anything, evidence that the other, committed at a time nearly coincident, was not so committed. It would have been a miracle indeed if, while a gang of ruffians were perpetrating at a given locality a most unheard-of wrong, there should have been another similar gang in a similar locality, in the same city, under the same circumstances, with the same means and appliances, engaged in a wrong of precisely the same aspect at precisely the same period of time. Yet in what, if not in this marvelous train of coincidence, does the accidentally suggestion opinion of the populace call upon us to believe? Before proceeding farther, let us consider the supposed scene of the assassination in the thicket of the Barret du Roule. This thicket, although dense, was in the close vicinity of a public road. Within were three or four large stones, forming a kind of seat with a back and a footstool. On the upper stone was discovered a white petticoat, on the second a silk scarf. A parasol, gloves, and a pocket handkerchief were also here found. The handkerchief bore the name Marie Roger. Fragments of dress were seen on the branches around. The earth was trampled, the bushes were broken, and there was every evidence of a violent struggle. Notwithstanding the acclamation with which the discovery of this thicket was received by the press, and the unanimity with which it was supposed to indicate the precise scene of the outrage, it must be admitted that there was some very good reason for doubt. That it was the scene, I may or I may not believe, but there was excellent reason for doubt. Had the true scene been, as Le Commercial suggested, in the neighborhood of the Rue Pavé Saint-André, the perpetrators of the crime, supposing them still resident in Paris, would naturally have been stricken with terror at the public attention thus acutely directed into the proper channel and, in certain classes of minds, there would have arisen, at once, a sense of the necessity of some exertion to redivert this attention. And thus, the thicket of the Barrier du Roule, having been already suspected, the idea of placing the articles where they were found might have been naturally entertained. There is no real evidence, although Le Soleil so supposes, that the articles discovered had been more than a very few days in the thicket while there is much circumstantial proof that they could not have remained there without attracting attention during the twenty days elapsing between the fatal Sunday and the afternoon upon which they were found by the boys. They were mildewed down hard, says Le Soleil, adopting the opinions of its predecessors, with the action of the rain and stuck together from mildew. The grass had grown around and over some of them, the silk of the parasol was strong, but the threads of it were run together within. The upper part, where it had been doubled and folded, was all mildewed and rotten, and tore on being opened. 
In respect to the grass having grown round over and some of them, it is obvious that the fact could only have been ascertained from the words, and thus from the recollections, of two small boys. For these boys removed the articles, and took them home before they had been seen by a third party. But grass will grow, especially in warm and damp weather, such as was that of the period of the murder, as much as two or three inches in a single day. A parasol lying upon a newly turfed ground might, in a single week, be entirely concealed from sight by the upspringing grass. And touching that mildew upon which the editor of Le Soleil so pertinaciously insists, that he employs the word no less than three times in the brief paragraph just quoted, is he really unaware of the nature of this mildew? Is he to be told that it is one of many classes of fungus, of which the most ordinary feature is its upspringing and decadence within twenty-four hours? Thus we see at a glance that what has been most triumphantly adduced in support of the idea that the articles had been for the last three or four weeks in the thicket is most absurdly null as regards any evidence of that fact. On the other hand, it is exceedingly difficult to believe that these articles could have remained in the thicket specified for a longer period than a single week, for a longer period than from one Sunday to the next. Those who know anything of the vicinity of Paris know the extreme difficulty of finding seclusion unless at a great distance from its suburbs. Such a thing as an unexplored or even an unfrequently visited recess, amid its woods or groves, is not for a moment to be imagined. Let any one who, being at heart a lover of nature, is yet chained by duty to the dust and heat of this great metropolis, let any such one attempt, even during the weekdays, to slake his thirst for solitude amid the scenes of natural loveliness which immediately surround us. At every second step he will find the growing charm dispelled by the voice and personal intrusion of some ruffian or party of carousing blackguards. He will seek privacy amid the densest foliage all in vain. Here are the very nooks where the unwashed must abound. Here are the temples most desecrate. With sickness of the heart, the wanderer will flee back to the polluted Paris as to a less odious, because less incongruous, sink of pollution. But if the vicinity of the city is so beset during the working days of the week, how much more so on the Sabbath? It is now especially that, released from the claims of labor, or deprived of the customary opportunities of crime, the town blackguard seeks the precincts of the town, not through love of the rural, which in his heart he despises, but by way of escape from the restraints and conventionalities of society. He desires less the fresh air and the green trees, than the utter license of the country. Here, at the roadside inn, or beneath the foliage of the woods, he indulges, unchecked by any eye except those of his boon companions, in all the mad excess of a counterfeit hilarity, the joint offspring of liberty and of rum. I say nothing more than what must be obvious to every dispassionate observer when I repeat that the circumstance of the articles in question having remained undiscovered for a longer period, that from one Sunday to another, in any thicket in the immediate neighborhood of Paris, is to be looked upon as little less than miraculous. 
but there are not wanting other grounds for the suspicion that the articles were placed in the thicket with the view of diverting attention from the real scene of the outrage. And first, let me direct your notice to the date of the discovery of the articles. Collate this with the date of the fifth extract made by myself from the newspapers. You will find that the discovery followed, almost immediately, the urgent communication sent to the evening paper. These communications, although various and apparently from various sources, tended all to the same point, that is, the directing of attention to a gang as the perpetrators of the outrage, and to the neighborhood of the Barrier du Roule as its scene. Now, here, of course, the suspicion is not that in the consequence of these communications, or of the public attention by them directed, the articles were found by the boys, but the suspicion might, and may well have been, that the articles were not before found by the boys, for the reason that the articles had not before been in the thicket, having been deposited there only at so late a period as in the date, or shortly prior to the date of the communications, by the guilty authors of these communications themselves. This thicket was a singular, an exceedingly singular one. It was unusually dense. Within its naturally walled enclosure were three extraordinary stones forming a seat with a back and a footstool, and this thicket, so full of a natural art, was in the immediate vicinity, within a few rods, of the dwelling of Madame de Luc, whose boys were in the habit of closely examining the shrubberies about them in search of the bark of the sassafras. Would it be a rash wager, a wager of one thousand to one, that a day never passed over the heads of these boys without finding at least one of them ensconced in the umbrageous hall and enthroned upon its natural throne? Those who would hesitate at such a wager have either never been boys themselves or have forgotten the boyish nature. I repeat, it is exceedingly hard to comprehend how the articles could have remained in this thicket undiscovered for a longer period than one or two days, and that thus there is good ground for suspicion, in spite of the dogmatic ignorance of Le Soleil, that they were, at a comparatively late date, deposited where found. End of the Mystery of Marie Roget, Part 3